This is a podcast from the Scottish Magazines Network, a research project about Scotland's independent magazine culture from the 1960s to the 1990s. To find out more, just search Scottish Magazines Network. The project is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Hello again, it's Dr. Scott Hames. This episode is a recording of the network's launch event entitled Mind That Magazine, which took place on the 12th of May, 2021. You'll be hearing audio from the online meeting we held, which began with two special guests reflecting on their time at the University of Edinburgh in the early 1980s. We'll hear first from Peter Kravitz and then from Professor Glenda Dorkay. The audio is not amazing, but it's the next best thing to being there. Peter Kravitz relaunched Edinburgh Review in 1984, and was its main editor until 1990, when he was succeeded by Murdoch MacDonald. In their article, Wasps in a Jam Jar, Linda Gunn and Alistair McCleary note that Kravitz was particularly excited about publishing new writing, and changed the magazine's focus from literature, with perhaps elitist and inhibiting connotations, to, quote, the written word, with a pronounced effort to publish outsider voices. At the same time, Peter was working as director of Polygon, an imprint of Edinburgh University Student Publications Board, and later Edinburgh University Press. There, he played a key role in publishing the fiction of James Kelman, Agnes Owens, and Janice Galloway, to name a few. Janice Galloway describes Peter Kravitz as, quote, a young man who more than any other nurtured Scotland's, and most particularly Glasgow's, renaissance of writing toward the end of the 20th century. Welcome, Peter. Hi there. What's it like to hear that description of your time uh, in Edinburgh Review and Polygon? Sure, a little bit embarrassing, partly because um, I relied on a large number of kind of people to recommend and suggest things, which I could go into in a moment, quite, quite a bit of which is invisible because you don't print next to a piece you know, recommended by so-and-so or whatever, but... Um, as I flick through the back issues, you know, it all comes back, you know, who, who was behind um, a, a very important person was uh, the manager of a bookshop that I worked in for my whole four years at Edinburgh University in Edinburgh called Eric Blair. Funny, he shares the same name with George Orwell, but Eric Blair managed a place called Better Books next to Sandy Bells in Edinburgh. Um, and I remember in 1980, I started work there and within about... Um, two weeks i got used to hamish henderson coming into cash checks to go uh, buy the drinks next door and uh, you know eric blair knew a huge amount about literature and um, uh, i've lost touch with him i'm not even sure if he's alive but it's now a subway for many years it's been a subway sandwich shop on forest road in edinburgh but more of that uh, anon i'll let you get on with some questions sure yes no that's that's a, a wonderful entree into this this world um, could you say a bit more about your perception of the the literary and cultural scene, particularly around the university in that period? I think it was probably helpful that I was very ignorant when I arrived. I mean, I arrived in 1980 as a student to study philosophy and politics and got involved almost immediately with Student Publications Board, EUSPB, which around that time, 1980, decided to call itself Polygon. And I have to say the books they were publishing were incredibly boring. Um, and they were largely books trying to get a market. There was an anthology of writings about Christmas. Um, I mean, probably one of the most interesting books they published just before them was on 
the Scottish Labour Party on the breakaway Scottish Labour Party, um, uh, you know, uh, that involved Jim Sillers and others in, in the late 70s. Um, but, you know, um, in terms of literature, um, they had published um, Elegies for the Dead um, and Cyrenesia, Hamish Henderson, I think a book of Ron Butlin poems, but apart from that, uh, mostly it was reprints, um, maybe a John Buchan reprint, Hunting Tower. But they made a policy in one of the meetings I was in to publish no contemporary literature because the fear was that contemporary literature wouldn't sell and therefore, what's the point? Um, and fortunately, I stuck it out and within about a year, um, you know, managed through Eric Blair's of Better Books' suggestion to go through every back copy of Scottish Collins, Scottish short stories. Uh, found James Kelman in there, couldn't believe what I was reading. And then soon after that, um, Paul Binding at Penguin published a lovely, um, I think it had two issues, literary magazine called Firebird, which had um, the first publication of Jim Kelman's Not Not While the Gyro. Uh, and for those who are um, scholars, um, it's the only time that Not Not While the Gyro appeared with a, um, a quote at the front from a Tom Leonard poem, which is where um, Jim Kelman got the idea for the Not Not, the double negation. It sounds to me that, especially on the Polygon side, your initial involvement was already a bit of a work of recuperation you were gathering things that were there, but that hadn't been kind of brought to the forefront or, or consolidated in that way. Was that the same sort of impulse that lay behind uh, the relaunch of Edinburgh Review? Well, just sort of tracking back a bit into the relaunch. So at that time as a student, um, the editor of New Edinburgh Review was James Campbell. And he really livened it, livened it up. I mean, it, um, it was New Edinburgh Review really... Um, began to run adrift as the student movement of the 70s began to, to, to run adrift. Um, it had some great issues in the 70s. Um, Hamish Henderson's translations of Gramsci's letters, several double issues, you know, just wonderful stuff. But then it just began to become a little boring. Um, Jim Campbell got uh, the designer James Hutchison to redesign it. And, you know, it was, for what it was, it was a, a lively A4 magazine. And having Jim Campbell sitting in the office when I was a student volunteering as editorial director of Polygon was very useful. We had lots of conversations. I think we had quite a few disagreements about writing, but, but good disagreements. And then probably around 82, yeah, about 82, um, Alan Massey took over as editor, and it was really interesting to see the difference, the direction that Alan Massey took it in. Um, I think he was editor for 18 months to two years, something like that. Um, and then when I graduated in 1984, I stopped my involvement with Polygon, and the, the, uh, the NER, New Edinburgh Review job, came up. I went for it, got it, but by that time was already committed to move to Glasgow to do a postgraduate in Russian language at Strathclyde, which I went to do, and then within about three months realized that um, I wasn't suited to be trained to be a spy at GCHQ 
auto work for the oil companies who wanted to exploit oil. Um, so, um, and I was a pretty weak linguist, even though I'd done two years of Chinese at Edinburgh, I was just a dabbler really in Russian. Um, and so uh, at that time I got a job uh, teaching historical and critical studies in the department run by the poet Stephen Mulrine at Glasgow School of Art. And it was wonderful meeting Stephen Mulrine, who obviously was, you know, had connections for decades in, in Scottish writing and um, also meeting students at Glasgow School of Art, which is what opened the scene of um, visual arts in what became Edinburgh Review through people that helped launch Transmission Gallery. Um, and through them, I met people in, involved in a magazine called Here and Now, which um, was a Scottish libertarian political magazine. Um, and together with Here and Now, and then with Jim Kelman and other writers, we formed something called the Free University Network of Glasgow, um, sometimes called just the Free Uni. And um, a lot of what came through that ended up in Edinburgh Review as well. Um, I think somewhere there's boxes of Free Uni archives in the Mitchell Library in Glasgow, but I don't think they've been properly um, uh, catalogued, so it might take a bit of hunting. Um, so yes, yeah, so there was really, um, I think at one point, um, the TLS reviewed the fir my first issue in 1984 and said they might as well call it the um, Glasgow Review, um, which I couldn't in any case because uh, Hamish White in Glasgow was editing something called the Glasgow Review with the late Kevin McCarr, I think. Um, and, you know, my contacts increasingly became west of Scotland, which is a bit anomalous for something called Edinburgh Review. I couldn't call it the new New Edinburgh Review, so I thought returning it to its old name might be a bit of puckish fun. I also introduced anonymous book reviews, which the original Edinburgh Review had. People were pretty angry. People wanted their names attached to the reviews, a lot of people, um, but then I didn't, I didn't use them if they, if they weren't willing to run them anonymously. So what's quite fun is uh, the idea of the anonymous review is in a small country, it's quite nice for people to be able to write freely without looking over their shoulder and sometimes to write outside their reputations. So somewhere in those issues of Edinburgh Review, those six years are anonymous reviews by George Davey, Alistair Gray, quite a lot by Tom Leonard. Um, probably um, Tom would be the writer who I would have used most. I mean, you can kind of work it out, anything to do with William Carlos Williams or Ezra Pound um, or, you know, that kind of Amer American literature would be Tom Leonard. Um, you know, uh, I remember George Davey delivered one of his reviews by cassette, uh, audio cassette, but he hadn't actually finished uh, writing it. So he was standing outside the office with a, a Walkman dictating his review. All I'll say is it was of a, a Scottish history book and he kept rewinding and um, and that's how he wrote his own uh, essays and books. He dictated a lot and got them typed out. And the, the challenging thing with George, um, which um, Murder MacDonald and Richard Gunn could say more about, is his Germanic sentences that would go on for three quarters of a page and then you get you get the verb at the end or something. Um, so very hard to edit, uh, George. And 
you know, it was a wonderful thing that um, he came back on stream and Murdo and Richard, um, you know, spent a lot of time uh, helping to bring the crisis of the democratic intellect, the sequel to his book from 1960 out in Polygon. And, you know, it was wonderful just sitting, having lunches with George, who then, I think it would have been George Davy that introduced us to Robert Calder, who was an amazing source of, of writers, um, you know, people like J.B. Caird's uh, memoir of Sawley McLean, that was through him. Um, he was a great obituarist. Um, there was a section also anonymous, I think it was anonymous, called the Encyclopedia, which we did. And uh, Robert Calder wrote a lot of pieces, really brilliant pieces. And of course, Robert um, stretched across other Scottish magazines, principally Chapman, um, but I'm pretty sure Lines Review as well. Um, you know, I mean, if you gathered together all of Robert's contributions it would, to all these magazines, it would probably be six volumes. Um, Carl Abenheimer, he introduced me to, um, Abenheimer was dead, but Abenheimer was um, the person in Glasgow who introduced R.D. Lang to a lot of existentialist literature because um, Abenheimer was a Jewish emigre psychoanalyst in Glasgow. And um, Robert uh, made links with Abenheimer's widow and brought a whole lot to the special issue on Scottish psychology we did. So I suppose I'm just what I'm just trying to do is to give you an idea of the different tributaries, um, you know, from Robert Robert Calder to um, you know Transmission Art Gallery. Uh, a lot came from Jim Kelman. I remember Jim was judging a Radio Clyde short story competition. And he said, uh, I can't remember who won it, but he said, I have to tell you that the second place short story should have won. And it's by a woman called Janice Galloway. She'd never had anything published at that point. And um, that led to, to Janice's um, The Trick is to, to Keep Breathing novel at Polygon. Uh, A.L. Kennedy came to me through, if it wasn't Jim, it was either Alistair or, or Liz Lockhead, um, Agnes Owens through Alistair. Um, and, you know, people, it, it was fertile ground, really, because there weren't, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of publishing space in terms of book publishers for Scottish writers, you know, uh, Collins, Scottish Short Stories, um, Eddie Linden's Aquarius magazine in London, which would have been an influence as well. Um, Chapman really stands above above everything else in terms of providing space for, you know, whether it's Elspeth Davy or the special issues on Willem Muir, etc. Um, I know this is meant to be about Edinburgh Review, but, you know, um, always over my shoulder was Chapman, which uh, just carried on doing great stuff. Um, I suppose I look back and I think I was probably quite arrogant in quite a lot of my decision making. Um, in certain writers who um, I thought had been pretty well published elsewhere. Um, I suppose um, James Campbell published Brian McCabe, um, Ron Butlin, um, Jerry Mangan, who were all his, his good friends. And I felt I didn't need to go over old ground with that. Um, so I, was, I think I was arrogant in the sense of constantly wanting to break new writers if possible or old writers who'd gone fallen out of fashion. Um, I remember Tom Leonard and Jim Kelman just saying, you know, about how 
uh, W.S. Graham, Sidney Graham, had had very little attention for a number of years. I mean, so much so that, of course, famously, Faber and Faber's publishers wrote to his wife to say, we hear that uh, your husband's no longer alive and we just wanted to make contact in case you wanted to buy any of the remainder collected poems. Uh, I don't know where they got the idea that uh, W.S. Graham had died, but it, it led Sidney Graham to call them Fibber and Fibber instead of Faber and Faber. And then um, just towards the end of his life, I think it was, I published the special issue um, on W.S. Graham. One of the funniest pieces was or one of the funniest authors was recommended by James Campbell. He said, you've got to get one of the missing, well, I'm confusing it now, it was the Trocky issue. Um, James Campbell said, you must get Christopher Logue to write on Alex Trocky. And Christopher Logue just kept saying no. And it was a real missing link uh, for Trocky. And in the end, we got a chocolate cake delivered to Christopher Logue and he, he gave us his, um, his piece. But for, for W.S. Graham, we never managed to get Harold Pinter, who uh, was a really good um, uh, good friend of the Grahams and, you know, funneled quite a lot of money to, to Nessie Dunsmuir and Sidney Graham to help them, help them live and got them onto the Royal Literary Fund pension, which wasn't a lot of money, but a bit of money. Um, you know, it was it was a it was a real eye opener doing the the W.S. Graham issue. The archives in the National Library, people will be aware of, I'm sure, phenomenal W.S. Graham archives there. And unfortunately, in I think either Vancouver or somewhere um, in Canada, because he also received money um, from someone will be able to correct me, someone in Canada who collected his notebooks um, and sent Graham money uh, to help help them live. I want to pause because otherwise I'll be going off in too many tangents. No, it's wonderful. The tangents are are excellent, although we could be here for four hours. Okay. Um, no, it's it, one of the things that's so interesting to hear you, you talk about is that whenever you get into the guts of a magazine like this, it sort of spirals outward into larger, larger circles. And that's, I think, particularly interesting for Edward Review because um, you can form the impression, especially in the archives, where not all of these connections are visible, of course, that there was a very sort of condensed world of intellectual activity at the University of Edinburgh. I mean, four or five of the, of the magazines that we're most interested in actually have the same postal address <laughs> on Baclue Place. <laughs> so, Concrastus, uh, Edinburgh Review, Radical Scotland, they all seem to be growing up cheek by jowl in this sort of island of activity centered very much on the kind of cosmopolitan intellectual world of the university. But if you know a little bit, I know a little bit, you realize it's actually not that at all. Um, and most of it was done from at Glasgow and, and spent a lot of time shining a light on, on Glasgow writers. Um, but I wonder if I could take you into the sort of workaday world of Edinburgh Review. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the social world of producing the magazine, who is involved, the mix of people, um, and how actually getting the magazine out worked on a kind of ordinary basis. So I suppose Joy Hendry and others will attest to this. One of the hardest things producing any issue is the is the work that you're not accepting, because in order to get to the work you are accepting. You know, if, if you do the job properly, you read all the unsolicited work that comes in. And it's 
it's a massive task, um, you know, um, and, uh, you know, there was always work in every issue from the unsolicited pile, uh, as I'm uh, sure was the case with the likes of Chapman and Aquarius and Lions Review. But it was a lot, you got a lot of submissions, um, a lot from abroad. Um, I'm sure all the magazines got that too. Um, so there was, um, I think there was an ad for John West uh, Tuna at the time that had a big pile of blank cans that, that were pushed off the table. And it said the, the fish that John West project make John West Tuna the best. And of course, it's sad to say, but you do have to reject a lot. Sometimes um, we rejected things that could easily get published elsewhere. Um, it's very tempting to fill a magazine with well-known names because you feel so happy that they're sending you stuff. Um, one kind of um, supplier of contacts who was pretty amazing also was Eddie Morgan because he uh, brought us into contact with Peter McCary, uh, Alan Reich, David Kinloch, Robert Crawford, um, and, you know, was just very generous. He was one of the most, I mean, Jim Kelman and Eddie Morgan probably tie for some of the most generous to other writers, um, just making sure that other writers got a look in. Um, I always remember being very moved, uh, as others will know, that Eddie Morgan would send his contributions off with a stamped addressed envelope, you know, not expecting any special treatment or anything. Um, and this was a time of incredible um, sort of productivity by him. Anyway, that's another that's another um, another story. Um, so yes, the workaday thing of producing an issue, you, you assemble the stuff from different sources. Um, we held more or less to 160 pages each issue. Occasionally, there might be a one, two, eight. Of course, you to be economic, you had to you had to do the word count to fit printers' signatures. Um, so I think it would have been one, two, eight, or one sixty, or for a double issue, um, something like somewhere in between two, five, six, I think was a double issue. Um, the cover designer was Anne Ross Patterson, I think just about for every issue from the beginning, who also did uh, the Polygon covers, a lot of the Polygon covers after James Hutchison did his era. And the design yeah, makes a big difference, you know, selecting a photo for the cover or an illustration. Um, there was one issue where we published um, a 32-page graphic novel set in Dundee, and we used, I think, a segment of that on the cover. I think that caused a bit of a fuss. People thought, what are you putting cartoons in a literary magazine for? Nowadays, graphic novels, it's all not very, there's nothing particularly strange about graphic novels, but um, it seemed radical at the time to some people. I'm trying to think the other workaday things. There's a lot of cow gum and scalpels, because in those days, you know, the computer printout of um, galleys, uh, um, Bill and Adam, Bill and Adam were the two in-house compositors. We were very lucky that um, because it was under the umbrella of Edinburgh University Student Publications Board, they they had two typesetters and two type tanks of typesetting machines that were used to make money for the Student Publications Board. Uh, they would they would typeset stuff for mainstream, Canongate, 
um, small things like the Dental Hospital Gazette. Um, they may or may not have done Radical Scotland, but I think they probably did. Um, and as, as you say, you know, the pigeonholes for the magazines, when we moved to the Pleasance from um, the Clue Place, um, you know, Radical Scotland had a pigeonhole at the Pleasance, Alan Lawson, and um, I had stopped my involvement with Polygon when I became editor of Edinburgh Review, and I was desperate um, to keep some connection with the unsolicited manuscripts, because by then um, we published three books by Jim Kelman, we published Janice Galloway, and so people were sending stuff in, um, the anthologies, the original prints, anthologies of writing by Scottish women. There was a lot of good stuff coming in, too much really for Polygon to be able to publish. So. Um, I would sit with a cup of tea and just ask permission to look at the the, um, the pile of unsolicited, manu unsolicited manuscripts, which are a very rich source um, for, you know, a short story. There might be a short story by a new writer that was by far and away the best short story of the five that he'd sent and not enough for a book, but we could put it in Edinburgh Review and it might end up later um, with, uh, with Polygon. I think I then rejoined Polygon when Martin Spencer of who came from Man, from Manchester University Press came and took over running Edinburgh University Press and then he took Polygon and Edinburgh Review under the Edinburgh University Press wing and then we moved to George Square which felt like going to Buckingham Palace because you know uh, one of those terraced offices in George Square um, the side of George Square that was left intact when they destroyed in Edinburgh, the other three sides to make way for the, the university library, etc. So that was that was another phase. Um, and then um, Martin Spencer was really good at bringing ideas from Edinburgh Review and Polygon into Edinburgh University Press. Um, he, he also got Cairns Craig to edit the Determination series for Edinburgh University Press, although that he might have used the Polygon label for that. He was he was a really shrewd publisher and was able, with his enthusiasm, just to bring lots of people together. Um, he was golden and very sadly died, um, I think, of a stroke or heart attack in about 1991-2. Terribly sad. Um, anyway, yes, yeah, so how an issue came together, cowgum, um, galleys, um, you know, scalpels, uh, sliced off fingertips when you skidded off the ruler, uh, and lots of late nights um, doing layouts, um, like like any magazine of the time, I suppose. Um, I mean, you know, there was a period after that where desktop publishing took over from the tanks that were the typesetting machines, and they were probably golden years because you could start a magazine um, at your desktop without having all this expensive typesetting paraphernalia. Um, the typesetters also were a source for manuscripts because occasionally I'd go in when uh, Adam Griffin was the one of the two typesetters I had a particular rapport with um, and I'd go in and he'd be smoking a cigarillo um, looking at the racing post and just uh, he was a really good reader he really knew his stuff and he would just say this is this is pretty good stuff that i'm typesetting here and it might be uh, might be a, an anthology for canongate or someone and then i would write to canongate and say could i put an extract from that in edinburgh review um 
he also, Adam Griffin also typeset the Jim Kelman books at Polygon and there was a long uh, disquisition between him and Jim Kelman about a story and not, not one that while the gyro called a wide runner, uh, which is about a greyhound track and about a magic system of foolproof, so-called, it was a joke, so-called foolproof betting. And him and Jim, because they were both gamblers, had a big, a big discussion uh, about, I think it was either a wide runner or in the novel, The Chancer. They had a, uh, so Adam, the typeset, had a big input. Um, I think he corrected a few of things that Jim had got wrong and Jim corrected a few things that Adam thought he was correcting but shouldn't have, if you know what I mean. Um, so again, more tangents, but that's the only way the, the associational brain thinks. Indeed, no, that's this is the, the kind of memories we're after. That's great. Um, because we do want to hear from others, let me conclude with two questions. Yeah. Um, and you can just take them together if you would. If you, if you look back on Edinburgh Review and Polygon, and I know this is a huge sprawling world <laughs> involving all kinds of different activities and relationships, what parts of that work are you most proud of and which strike you as the most significant? And the second question is, what is your view of the prospect of digitizing this material so that it would be available to the public again? Gosh, um, I suppose the, the two issues of Edinburgh Review that I'm most proud of are the, um, the W.S. Graham and the Trocky issues. Um, if it, if it wasn't me, some, someone else would have done a lot of this stuff. Someone else would have come along. Um, you know, there's um, the people from Transmission, uh, Malcolm Dixon and, and others started Variant magazine in Glasgow, which, you know, would have ended up doing quite a lot of, I think, publishing of, of Glasgow things, uh, Glasgow especially, political essays, um, Clydeside Press in Glasgow. There, there's a lot that would have happened anyway. Um, and actually, there's there's a big stroke of luck, you know, in terms of, you know, probably being working in better books with the manager and better books that I had who pointed things out, pointed out the Jim Kelman piece and led to me writing to Jim, who initially said that he'd been rejected by uh, 40 publishers, uh, book publishers. And, you know, there wasn't much point in sending anything out. And then eventually um, he was willing to send stuff out and and that that led to him being published. And, you know, in, in an irony, Jim is now, uh, Jim's main publisher is now the Glasgow magazine, The Word, um, T-H-I, Word, W-U-R-D, because, you know, um, trends move on. And I think it's it's tough for publishers to keep in print the whole of an author's um, back catalogue, but I think the word are going to do it. Um, they've also been producing new stuff by Jim. In terms of digitization, I, th I think it, it's there's you know while it's all copyright contributors, I think I think you digitize as much as you can, and then just say um, any any problems that anyone's got with a copyright, just get get hold of you know you can pull it out if you don't want your piece. On the digital you know, network, it is really odd that all these magazines, you know, Sincrastus, Chapman, Lines Review, Edinburgh Review. I mean, it'd be nice to get some of the magazines from from the seventies, particularly Scottish International, Bob Tate and Isabel Murray. Scottish International was a big influence. It's a phenomenal magazine. Um, I, I stumbled on it um, going to McNaughton's Bookshop in Edinburgh and seeing a pile 
and um, I said to Elizabeth Strong, uh, I said, where, where did you get these? She said, oh, we, we got all Robert Garriach's copies because Robert Garriach was um, one of the editorial board with with Edwin Morgan and possibly Hamish Henderson, um, possibly Sawley McLean as well, but Scottish International in a way, you know, probably the magazine before that that would have been just, you know, a phenomenal magazine for opening doors would have been Ian, Ian Hamilton Finley's Poor Old Tired Horse, which uh, is just just a hoot. It's just a very funny magazine as well as, you know, very serious in what it was pushing out, very radical poetic agenda. Um, you know, Ian, Hamilton's fin Ian Hamilton Finley's work, crucial for Tom Leonard in terms of um, Hamilton Finley putting down Glasgow speech um, phonetically. So, um, yes, it would be great to have, and there's, there's other magazines. Um, was there one called Pavement um, from the 70s? It would be great to get a benefactor to get, allow all of these to be digitized. Um, you know, I don't know if it will happen, but, you know, uh, if you do it slowly, eventually it will get there. Um, yeah, we're, we're working on it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Our second special guest was Glenda Norkay. Glenda is Professor of Scottish Literary Studies at Liverpool John Moores University, where she is Director of the Research Institute for Literature and Cultural History. She is a leading scholar of Scottish literature, especially women's writing, Robert Louis Stevenson, and the contemporary novel. She is editor of the Edinburgh Companion to Scottish Women's Writing, and her most recent book is on Stevenson, Literary Networks, and Transatlantic Publishing in the 1890s. She also knows something about literary networks of a more recent vintage and local character, having been part of the group that produced Ken Craster's magazine in the early 1980s, also at the University of Edinburgh. Glenda, take it away. Thanks, Scott, and, and, and thanks for asking me to think about this time and, and go into the darker recesses of my memory. Um, to think about a time, I suppose, um, that, that was incredibly energising and motivating, but also, I, I think, quite challenging. And I think it's been really interesting listening to Peter and thinking about parallels and and differences in, in experiences. So my experience of Kincrastas began in 1981 when I was starting uh, a PhD at Edinburgh. I'd come out of an English degree at Edinburgh and really it was only in my, the final year of that degree that I got the chance to study any Scottish writing, primarily through a course um, run by Cairns Craig and Randall Stevenson. So out of that, um, Came a determination to work on Scottish literature and resisting encouragement to go elsewhere, which was um, quite a pressure at the time. I decided I wanted to stay in Scotland. So I felt that was, a, in a way, a statement of allegiance to Scottish culture, which now seems incredibly obvious and simple, and is, I think, much simpler now. But becoming part of Kincrastus, I think, was part of the opportunity to, to express that commitment. And I suppose I was already very aware of the magazine's very specific agenda as a response to the 1979 referendum and its agenda to affect political change through the cultural sphere. And as I'm sure you all know, um, the framework of the magazine was McDermott's maxim, if there's aught in Scotland worth hearing, there's naught to which it's unattached. And that determination to have a combination of, of national and international uh, was very powerful in shaping the magazine. I suppose one point of difference really thinking about, about what Peter was saying was 
that the magazine uh, was founded by six postgraduate students at Edinburgh and the agenda I think was very much driven by this founding group and their shared commitment. Almost all of them were working on PhDs in Scottish literature, predominantly the Scottish Renaissance. Uh, so Glenn Murray and Ray Ross were working on McDermott. I think John Burns was working on Neil Gunn, Sheila Hearn on Edwin Muir and Bill Finlay on John Galt. And the sixth member, Christine Bald, was actually working on, on Western, American Western literature, and, uh, but was actually in London by the time I joined. So I joined Pinkrastis in 1981 as an editorial assistant, along with Carol Anderson. And the position we were in, I suppose, was joining a very established culture with a very clear um, agenda and commitment. But, you know, we felt very excited and privileged to be part of that. And I think the first issue we worked on was, was uh, number five. A few points, I suppose, perhaps to make about the magazine. Um, Looking at it, it looks very exciting. I always felt, thought it looked very exciting and dynamic. I think it was perhaps produced with with less support than, than the Edinburgh Review. Um, I think there was perhaps less certainty around what it looked like, the covers. If you look through the issues, that does change. But I think it always looked um, very exciting. I'm not sure. This, I think, perhaps was too exciting, if you can see that particular and um, very bright copy, but always very dynamic and stylish and bold. And coming to working on Contrastus as a postgraduate, the range of material it covered just seemed incredibly exciting. Literature, art, theatre, poetry, film, um, essays on philosophy, history, politics. And for me, it really opened out new perspectives on uh, international scenes I was unfamiliar with. So issue number seven, you've got an essay on Pasolini's poetry, a translation of an interview with Marques, a critique of the double in John Herdman's fiction, I know John's here, and a new essay on Gaelic writing, all in the same issue. And I think that's very representative of the, the flavour of, of the magazine and what seemed so exciting working on it. Uh, number nine, issue number nine, had an assessment of Christo's new work in Miami, which, quote, considered his aesthetic form within a Scottish context, which was really kind of mind blowing. So that, I think, was, was very um, um, inspiring and engaging. Like Peter, I also remember working through a huge amount of unsolicited material, particularly poetry. We were inundated with poetry and the editorial process around that was, again, long and demanding and, and um, quite feisty at times, but also again, re really interesting. And I think there was a real sense of being part of a, of a pioneering project, I suppose, where cultural and national political positions were being thrashed out. And you can see that whole strand of the essays by Cairns Craig and Christopher Harvey and um, Craig Beveridge and, and Ronnie Turnbull, as they're actually trying to work out what a Scottish cultural nationalism means, what Scottish identities mean. And that, that kind of debate was also carried on in events. Some people here might remember them better than me, but Contrasta did organise a number of public events of poetry readings and so on with Norman McKay and Liz Lockhead and actually W.S. Graham. Um, 
you know, as a postgrad, it was tremendously exciting to, to meet those people and to have someone like Les Murray, you know, Les Murray walking into the tiny um, Pinkrastus office in Buckley Place. And um, it was more of a pigeon loft, really, rather than an office. And I suppose thinking back, I sort of remember just the really exciting material that was submitted. Uh, a particularly memorable day was when Alistair Gray's, uh, part of Alistair Gray's 1982 Janine arrived. And I remember us all looking with some astonishment at the, the amazing typography of, of that um, submission, thinking, what, what is this? And I also remember, and that was another memorable experience, going with Carolyn Anderson to interview Alistair Gray in Glasgow, where we had a very long and challenging interview at his home, and then a much more relaxed and illuminating uh, conversation in the pub afterwards. So I suppose really, you know, very positive um, recollections of, of that period is that excitement, dynamism, um, validation of, of working on Scottish writing in an international context. Um, and, and it was really highly educative, I suppose. I would say it was also quite educative in, in the kind of challenges and questions it prompted in, in me. Um, in the first issue I worked on, number five, was, was there was an article by Joyce Macmillan on uh, facing up to all dreadful writing and the women's movement. And it reviewed a poetry collection from Stramullion and Joy Henry, I mean, Joyce here, Joy Henry's double issue of Chapman, hugely influential, woven by women. And um, Joyce Macmillan found the former too political and the latter not political enough. And one of the things she said in that article was that it was time for a younger generation of Scottish writers with a heightened awareness of the new feminism uh, to start analysing the culture into which they were born and to hammer out a pattern of liberation that will mean more to women in Scotland. And I can't pretend really that when I first read that, I took it too much to heart, but increasingly in terms of an education, working on the magazine, um, both the, the absence, I suppose, of women, as, the relative absence of women as contributors, the relative lack of engagement with women, either as cultural producers or with gender as an element of debate in terms of Scottish identity, did, I think, come to seem perhaps more problematic as I suppose did the, what would you call it, the everyday politics of working with a small group which develops its own culture. And I suppose thinking back on it, one thing I've been reflecting on it is issues around, I suppose, what we would now call positionality. Um, one article that, that Kincrastas published um, in, in early 1983 uh, was came out of the Scotch Reels um, event at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. It's an article by Douglas Nowaney Bain and Gillian Skirrell, which talked about the representation of women in Scottish culture. And that I found that really resonant. And Carol Anderson and I went to Glasgow and met with women members from the Glasgow Film Collective. And that was really inspiring, but also encouraging in thinking about these issues of where women fit into Scottish cultural identities. And I suppose I was listening to Esther Breitenbach's podcast on, on, on the website, 
And I was thinking about how at that time, where at that time, I suppose, you would go to in Scotland with a feminist cultural agenda, where you would find a, a feminist cultural agenda. And I have to confess, I probably read Spare Rib more than, than Harpies and Quines or, or Misprint. There was Chapman, of course, doing doing some wonderful work. Um, Carol and I went to a Women in Journalism in Scotland conference, at which I think Rose Pipes was um, talking. We tried to organise a, a Women's Scottish Literature Reading Group, which I think kind of turned into a consciousness raising group and just really fell apart. Um, Carol and I tried to get funding for a project on Scottish write, women writers, and, and, and that got nowhere. So I suppose one of the challenges was, was retaining that commitment to what Pincrastus, um, you know, was, was about and, and its agenda, um, but also perhaps questioning the parameters of, of the magazine. And I think perhaps one issue that, that complicates that positionality is class. Um, and Alistair McCleary, writing about Pincrastus, notes that it tended to equate Scottishness with being working class. And I think that intersectionality is particularly difficult if Scottish is identified with working class identity, which is then identified with a masculine identity. So the question, the tension, I suppose, is, is where do women fit into that particular pattern? And I suppose if you look at the different roles, the different roles of editorial assistants, assistant editors, advisory partnerships on the various issues of Kincrastas, you can probably see changing allegiances and, and, and shifting positions, which reflect, I think, some of the um, yeah, some of some of the, the debates that were going on. So one thing I'd really be interested to hear people talking about um, is whether that's an experience across the board of these small magazines, is it characteristic of small magazines, is it perhaps particularly characteristic of a small and committed group working with a, a very uh, specific agenda, so perhaps more the kind of tensions that emerge in political organisations, um, or was it just the product of you know, a particular moment in time, a particular set of personalities. I, I think it's quite interesting to try and track that um, through. And I'd be really interested to hear what other people uh, have to say about that. I suppose perhaps the, the final thing I was going to say was, was um, perhaps more positive, that out of those tensions, I think there emerged a number of projects that um, attempted to redress that cultural imbalance. And it perhaps took some time until you have Gifford and Macmillan's History of Scottish Women's Literature, um, Anderson and Christian's book, Christensen and Lumsden's book, a whole range of articles and essays, which um, I think really were trying to create more complicated models for thinking about gender. and. I mean, perhaps that the turbulence, the turbulence that I remember of, of that time was an impetus and, and was really, I suppose, just an incredibly rich small magazine culture. The Scottish Magazines Network is supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. <laughs>